For the week of Wednesday, April 4th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, Carolyn Long. She is a Democratic candidate for Congress running in Washington's 3rd District, and she joins us to talk about her campaign and about her pragmatic approach to politics. A political campaign is really easy if people speak in taglines and they say, I want X, Y, and Z. For me, I will say I want X, Y, and Z, but let me first find a way to pay for it. Then, Indivisible members in Washington's 8th District have officially made their endorsement for the congressional race, and it is a co-endorsement of Jason Ritterizer and Kim Schreier. We talk with both of them about what the endorsement means to them and how they're gearing up their campaigns as we move toward the primary in August. That's all coming up, so stay with us. Carolyn Long is a Democratic candidate running for Congress in Washington's 3rd Congressional District, and she joins us now to discuss her campaign. Hello, Carolyn Long. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I will just start by asking, how is the campaign going so far? It's going great. I'm really excited. Um, on Friday, we had a formal kickoff to our uh, field game in Vancouver. We had between 350 and 400 people show up for that event. Oh, wow. And that was really nice just to see the energy um, behind this campaign and the energy that's in the 3rd Congressional District for a, a candidate who can win this race. So you are an assess, uh, associate professor in the School of Politics, Philosophy, and Public Affairs at Washington State University, Vancouver. Uh, you are in the process of taking uh, a bit of a leave while you campaign. Uh, but, you know, politics is your wheelhouse. You've taught it for many, many years. So I'm, I'm moved to ask, was running for office something that you had always planned to do? Did this catch you by surprise? It caught me completely by surprise. I, I think... Uh... It's always in the back of everybody's mind when they, they see representation that uh, that they think they can do better. But for me, I've really lived a nonpartisan life. The last election I ran for was student body president in high school. Oh, really? Um, yes. Uh, but what what led me to it was that a lot of my recent research has been on political polarization and the growing incivility in our public discourse. And so I've been doing a lot at the local level to address that. And um, when I started seeing what was happening at the national stage up into the, and including the election of this president, I started to think that there was something that I had to do about it. Um, and I really believe that I could bring a message of um, uh, civility and practical problem solving to Congress, um, which is why I decided to run. Uh, well, civility and practical problem solving are actually a couple of things that we got some listener questions about. I should mention we got a ton of listener questions when I let people know that you were going to be on this show. And so I want to get to that. But first, um. I think one of the things that I moved to ask, because you have been in the race the shortest amount of time among your two remaining primary opponents, uh, David McDevitt and Dorothy Gask, uh, they have a head start on you in terms of fundraising. And I'm wondering uh, how you plan on making up that gap. Sure. Uh, well, working hard. Uh, uh, that's the one thing is we've started uh, raising money from individual donors. The minute we got into this race, I'm happy to say that our we reached our, our Q1 goal of a quarter of a million dollars. So I have actually raised more money um, than any other Democratic candidate at this short, in this small amount of time. Um, uh, and so I think that I was able to close that gap very quickly, which means that I can um, uh, run this race competitively. Now, are those strictly uh, individual uh, donations? Are there any corporate donations that you're accepting at this point? No, I will not take corporate donations. Um, I made that clear from the beginning. I do have one. Um, uh, I've, I've had several union endorsements and one union uh, pack check, um, and that's it at this point. 
You know, we did have a listener question about whether you would accept PAC money, uh, and it sounds like you will. And so uh, is that on a case-by-case basis? Absolutely. I would only accept PAC money from organizations um, that align with my values and beliefs. I'm a former union journeyman. Um, I paid my way through college as a journeyman at Safeway. And so labor has always been very important to me. And so I will definitely take their support. And I would take support from organizations like Planned Parenthood, which also aligns with my values and beliefs. So I, I wouldn't. So I'm very discriminatory in terms of where I would take that money. You know, from whom I would take that money. Sure. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned something that I was planning on getting to later, but I, I moved to ask it now because I think it's very fundamental about what's happening in the Democratic Party. And you're uh, a professor uh, of politics. And, you know, you mentioned that you've received uh, labor endorsements, specifically uh, most recently, Labor's International Union of North America. You mentioned the fact that you were in a union when you were paying your way through through college at Safeway. And I'll ask you, why do you suppose Democrats have lost labor support over the last few decades? And and what do you think it'll take to get that back? Sure. Well, I think labor has been undermined historically because the Republicans have been so effective at rebranding a lot of these issues, like the right to work. Um, And so I think that we've lost the messaging game. So you've seen, I think, the support erode because we've lost control of the conversation. I also think that we've been playing defense rather than offense on issues of labor. So I think there's that larger question that the Democrats have not been effective at messaging um, a pro-labor Uh, pro-union to just America. In terms of rank-and-file support, why Democrats are losing rank-and-file members, I think there's sort of a perspective of many people that the Democratic Party is prioritizing things other than labor um, in terms of social issues. Um, And that has been, I think, disconcerting for some uh, members, some rank-and-file members. So there's, there's a larger messaging issue, but then there's the fact that there are a lot of people who believe that they've, there are needs are not being taken care of. And I think that's where you lose um, just some regular members. Well, do you think that the Democrats can become what they used to be, uh, say, back in like the 1970s or even 1980s, the big tent party where all of these different factions can kind of coexist peacefully in order to, to win elections? Well, I, th- I think we definitely can. I think we are still the big tent. I think we're just we're dealing with a little bit of fracturing in the party in terms of the direction we'd like the Democratic Party to go. So I think that we will always be inclusive of as many people as possible. That's what Democrats are like. But it's how we prioritize certain issues. And I think that we've lost sight of the fact that there are a lot of people in this country that are struggling economically. And there are a lot of people in the third congressional district, as well as nationally, who want us to lead with that conversation rather than other issues. It doesn't mean those other issues aren't important. They are, but it's how we are going to prioritize, you know, increasing salaries, um, making sure that people are secure in their homes in terms of having access to affordable housing. Those are the things that I think we need to refocus on um, with greater urgency. And since you bring that up, uh, Sue Vorenberg asks uh, specifically that question. She said, I would like to know what your thoughts are on addressing income inequality in this country. And to that, I would narrow it down and say, how will you address income inequality in Washington's third district? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the first thing that we have to do is not pass um, bills like the Republican tax giveaway, because that actually fosters greater income inequality. So through our 
um, tax uh, bill, through our tax uh, system, we have to make sure that we don't pass legislation that further erodes um, our opportunity to get ahead. When you look at the tax reform bill that the Republicans passed, and it was a Republican bill because Democrats weren't involved in that, it really benefits those who are in the upper echelons in terms of wealth and corporate donors. Um, and that is in incredibly problematic. And oftentimes uh, we will hear Republicans speaking about the few bits of uh, uh, breaks that some people get at the bottom, but it's peanuts compared to where most of that money is going, which is to um, those high income earners who aren't, by the way, reinvesting in the economy as we are told that they were going to right. do. So that's the first thing, which is to have tax policies that don't further the gap. The second thing that I think we need to do is really focus on family wage jobs. And that's where my support for union comes through loud and clear. Because if you look at wage stagnation, um, it's very problematic unless you have some added protection for workers. And so if we're able to do that, I think that that's going to provide some level of security. Um, the other thing that I would mention is uh, one of the reasons why I decided to run is because um, the incivility we're seeing in our politics mirrors income inequality. So if you were to chart income inequality and incivility uh, in our discourse and political polarization, you would see that they're absolutely aligned. So you have to make sure. And why is that in your mind? I think part of it is the outsized role that corporations have in our political discourse. Um, uh, I think part of it is also the fact that if you're if you're lower, if you know if you're not able to get ahead in America, um, and you don't see any hope, um, that makes you much more, um, I think. Uh, entrenched in how you feel about things and much angrier. Mm. So I think that that's part of it. Um, and you also have polarization when people start to leave the electorate. So part of the problem is that there are so many people who've decided not to participate, which then again gives more um, purchase for those who have an outsized level of influence, like, like people who are in corporations and people who take that corporate money to relay their message. Well, it does seem that people are coming back to political engagement uh, if groups like Indivisible are any indication. So let's shift over and talk some specific policy issues. And I'd like to start with gun safety. We just had the March for Our Lives with tens of thousands of people marching here in Washington uh, in solidarity with the march in D.C. First, I'd like to get your take on the students in Parkland, Florida, and their ability to move what has been such an intractable discussion on on gun safety in this country. Yeah, I think what they what they're doing is remarkable. I think these young students are really galvanized around a policy rather than a person, which is why I think they've been so effective. Oftentimes, people newly entering the electorate are attracted to a particular candidate. We've seen that usually at the presidential level, but here they've attacked. Uh, they're attracted to a policy issue that. Um, they've lived with all of their lives. You know, uh, when I grew up, we had earthquake drills. They have drills where um, uh, there's maybe an active shooter in their school. Mm. And so they're able to speak to this from experience. They're able to lead the conversation. And they're actually able to, you know, talk truth to power and really get politicians to um, think more thoughtfully than bullet points on this issue. So I think it's fantastic. And I think it's going to last. I think they're going to stay on this issue for some time. And I think they're going to move the debate forward. There have been a number of questions that have come in uh, about what sort of gun safety legislation you would support. I know that you have heard these questions from uh, people that you've spoken to um, as you are out campaigning. Uh, so what sorts of gun safety legislation do you support? 
Sure. So I think that Washington state is real, uh, can be used as a model for ways that we can approach gun safety measures. So what Washington has done in terms of um, when somebody being able to get somebody adjudicated mentally ill in front of a, a judge, I think that's fantastic legislation. Also being able to keep firearms out of the hands of domestic violence um, uh, abusers. But there's also wide bipartisan support for a number of measures, including comprehensive background checks, um, including uh, waiting day periods, including um, uh, closing the loophole uh, for gun shows. So there's a, a lot of minor uh, measures that can have a dramatic uh, um, uh, influence on gun violence overall, where we have that type of support. And I really like the extreme risk protection order uh, measure that was passed by Washingtonians, because that gets to a lot of aspects of gun violence that we haven't really been talking about in light of parkland. Yeah, which and is I will that- just jump in very quickly to say that an ERPO is a measure that temporarily removes someone's ability to possess a firearm if he or she is deemed a danger to themselves or others. And this is an order uh, by a judge. Correct. Um, and the reason why I like that piece of legislation is it gets to other aspects of gun violence that we have to uh, continually think about, which is the fact that 50 women um, are killed per month by their domestic partners in America. And usually that is with handguns. So I think that we have to look at the number of measures that can bring gun violence down for everyone, not just a particular uh, measure aimed at um, certain types of weapons. I think for certain type of military grade weapons, we ought to look at reclassifying those under the National Firearms Act, because that way we could require additional uh, training, additional education, and just make it exceedingly difficult for people to have those firearms. Um, This has been done successfully for other types of military grade weapons. And I think it's an avenue that we can use in order to to look at other types of weapons as well. Yeah, and and you're talking about reclassification, specifically the class of weapons that fall under the assault rifle category, AR-15s and the like. You know, I moved to ask you about something that you said about the weapons, those types of weapons that are already in circulation. You said, quote, buybacks are great, but getting people to actually give up their guns is quite difficult. And so then I moved to ask, would you support banning future sales of assault weapons? I think that, uh, I think that, Using the National Firearms Act is actually a more effective way of addressing that issue, Um, because if you have 8 to 15 million assault weapons that are out there, even if you have a buyback program and you pass a ban, then suddenly all those people who have those weapons are criminals. And so how are we going to get it? Right. But that's that's, that's sort of what my my question is predicated on, which is you are not you're not necessarily criminalizing the people who own the weapons currently, but banning future sales. Is that something that you would support? Um, I don't, I think that whenever you're talking about banning a weapon, it becomes somewhat problematic because uh, let's look back at the previous assault weapons ban. Um, It was written by members of Congress and it was completely ineffective in getting rid of assault weapons. Um, Everybody thinks that it was useful, but what happens is gun manufacturers determine that there are different ways that they can manufacture those weapons that get around the the law. So I can't imagine how we can have um, a piece of legislation that could encapsulate those types of, of weapons. I, it, I would have to see how that was, was written in a way that didn't have loopholes, which could be exploited. So my concern is that we haven't been able to effectively do that in the past. I would have to really think hard about how it could be done effectively in the future. And then think hard about whether or not our attention to that type of a ban has us lose sight of all these other measures, which more effectively, I would argue, um, address gun violence in America. 
Yeah. Well, you know, as you said earlier, it does seem to be an issue where change is happening at the state level as opposed to the federal level. I guess we'll have to see if that dynamic shifts uh, in the future. So I want to move well, next and talk should, about just, just to follow up. I yeah, think it should. Ahead. Yeah, I think I think it's something we need to have. a We need to have a really productive conversation about gun violence in America. Um, I would say we start with letting the CDC study this issue because I think a lot of people are unaware of how bad it is in terms of um, uh, the role of handguns in the inner cities. Um, if you're African-American, you're 13 times more likely to, to die uh, than somebody who's in a suburban area from a handgun. So I think we need to look at those issues. But of course, Parkland is so, so traumatic. And we've seen, this is one of many school shootings that we've seen, often with assault weapons. So I, it's understandable that our attention is drawn to that and the attention of these kids is drawn to that. But I think we have to look more broadly at gun violence in America. And my uh, approach to it is the same as my approach is to legislating, which is that we have to Let's see where we have strong bipartisan support. Let's see what is possible with a Republican in the White House, a Repu likely a Republican in uh, controlled Senate. And let's get those measures passed because those will help us immediately start saving lives. So that's that's why I, I have this approach. Okay. So let's shift over and talk about health care. Uh, you talk on your web page about wanting to repair the ACA and uh, specifically about stabilizing the marketplace. And as far as that goes, I'm wondering, would you support reinstating the individual mandate that was repealed under the GOP tax law? Absolutely. And then I would say the next thing we have to do is um, get the Murray Alexander bill passed because that will help stabilize the marketplace as well. It's a bipartisan law that is in um, it's sort of hold up right now in Congress, which would uh, deal with the cost share uh, cost share. Um, uh, for areas. And so I think that that the ACA is an imperfect piece of legislation. Um, it uh, helped us uh, fix the bleeding in terms of um, people not having access to health care. Um, and there are millions of people who are on the ACA. And I think that we can't abandon it um, because those people will lose coverage. So I think that that's the first place that we go is we stabilize it. Obviously, if you don't have the individual mandate, people, mostly young, healthy people will be less inclined to actually um, sign up for it. So I think we start there. You have said that you don't support a Medicare for all healthcare type program. And a number of listeners have asked why. So I'll, I'll just ask you, why not? Sure. Sure. I support having some form of comprehensive health care for all Americans. Um, what people are dissatisfied about is the fact that I don't say right away that we should have Medicare for all, but I have rather a, a, a an incremental approach and people seem dissatisfied with that. But Knowing that it's going to be difficult to have that level of universal care in terms of having it pass, again, with a Republican president, Republican-controlled Senate, my argument is we start with the ACA. There are 18,000 people in the 3rd Congressional District who are on the Affordable Care Act. Let's fix that. Let's bring down those costs in order to get those people coverage. Because if they don't have coverage, and they don't have coverage now, people are going to they're gonna die and they're gonna get sicker and they're actually gonna be more expensive to treat. The next thing that I talk about is let's pursue some type of a public option as a way of having people have an avenue through government to buy insurance, um, which would provide additional coverage. And, and, and then I say, let's look at other types of um, avenues per, for getting as many people coverage as possible. Um, so I think the, the criticism of, of my approach is that I don't say Medicare for all right now. I say, this is what we can do in this particular political climate in order to protect as many people as possible. 
And so your approach is practical. And then I, I guess that begs the question, with your incremental approach, do you see yourself ever supporting a Medicare for all type healthcare program? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I, a, a political campaign is really easy if people speak in taglines yeah. and they say, I want X, Y, and Z. For me, I will say I want X, Y, and Z, but let me first find a way to pay for it. Would, would healthcare for all be exactly what we want? Of course, we're the only industrialized country that doesn't have it, but let's make sure that we have a path to doing it um, and finding a way to pay for it. Uh, would it be great for us to have uh, college education, which is free for everybody? Absolutely but let's find out how we pay for it first. So um, that's where uh, the details uh, trouble me. The details keep me up at night because I want to make sure that there's a way that we can get there. I don't just want to promise somebody that I can do something. What, and of course, I hear listeners in my head saying, you know, we could pay for that, that the money does exist. It's just a matter of political priorities. And we saw many billions of dollars given away to our nation's billionaires in tax cuts recently, which could just as easily have gone toward universal health care, say. So what I hear you saying is you're looking at the situation as it is in 2018 and saying this is what is possible now. That's precisely what I'm saying. And I think that that approach to governing may, again, not be as uh, seductive as uh, saying that I want all these things and can get it right away. Uh, my approach is what can we do to help the mo the, you know, the, the, the largest number of people at this particular time in this climate? And that's why my approach to gun safety is uh, practical. That's why my approach to healthcare is practical. Even my approach to tax reform is practical, which is that I'd love to repurpose all of that money. It's going to be very difficult to do with this administration. So I, I again, it's not, a, um, it's not what people may want to hear, but that's how I would govern. So let's move on to some specific listener questions. Uh, Georgia Davenport would like to know your stance on House Joint Resolution 48. Now, this would overturn Citizens United and create a constitutional amendment that would declare that money isn't speech and corporations aren't people. Uh, both your primary opponents, Dorothy Gask and David McDevitt, support it. Uh, do you? Absolutely. Okay. There you go. So that's it. And, and actually, uh, Georgia goes on to mention Washington's Initiative 735, which uh, passed last year uh, here in the state and urged but didn't require Washington's congressional delegation to propose an amendment overturning Citizens United. Uh, and she noted that uh, 735 had 64 uh, percent support in this state. What does that say to you? Well, it says that there's there's tremendous uh, grassroots support for overturning Citizens United. I will say um, that is very difficult to pass constitutional amendments to over. You know, it, it's happened four times in our constitutional history. Four times we've been able to pass an amendment which addresses a Supreme Court decision uh, that people are dissatisfied with. So I, I, I hope we can do it. I'd like to see a, a, a grassroots effort to have that amendment passed. But I think in the interim, we need to do more in terms of federal legislation to increase transparency for um, um, the issue of money in politics. And what so, does that legislation look like to you? If you were in Congress right now, what would you get behind? Um, I would get behind anything that, that would uh, more clearly link who the donors are to the advertisements that, that are happening um, that would more clearly link um, uh, uh, the, the connection between lobbyists um, and campaigns. I, so I, I would I, I think transparency is really important on this particular issue because people do not know 
who is funding uh, many of these campaigns, particularly dark money. So I think we could do that, which would address part of the problem um, while pursuing a constitutional amendment or differences, uh, different people on the Supreme Court um, for them to reverse Citizens United. Absolutely. And that obviously is a Senate battle. So Jen Robertson uh, notes your priorities page doesn't mention LGBTQIA people. Where do they fit in your platform? I'm very strongly an advocate um, uh, for them. And our our webpage is indeed incomplete. There's a lot of things that aren't on it. When when I ask this question, I definitely talk about how, um, uh, you know, equality is important for all all groups. So I'm I'm very much a strong supporter. I'm very progressively liberal on those issues, issues of women's reproductive health. Um, So absolutely. And then Jennifer Diane or Dian, and Jennifer, I apologize if I'm getting your last name wrong, but she asks, how much of a priority is making Southwest Washington safer for families of color? It's very much a priority. You know, I, I don't know if you've looked at the demographics of the district. The district is overwhelmingly white. That doesn't mean that we, we can't do uh, a better, a more effective job protecting people of color. Um, I am very aware of some of the issues in um, uh you know, in those communities. Um, I was at a recent meeting at the NAACP and people were talking about um, making sure that they were uh, safe in their communities. And so that that's something that I'll be talking more about. So then uh, just uh, one last question. Uh, in order to run here, you relocated from Salem, Oregon to Vancouver in July of 2016. Uh, a lot of candidates relocate for state-level races, but the, this is a question that's going to come up in terms of your roots in the district. Sure. Uh, your uh, potential opponent, Jamie Herrera-Butler, uh, has referred to you as, quote, Oregon-based. Uh, so how do you respond to that? Sure. So the first response is that I've worked in the community for 22 years. I know more about Southwest Washington uh, than I do about my former home in Salem. Um, Every place I go in every remote part of my district, I see a former student of mine or somebody where I've done some work with um, with some of my organizational work. So I uh, have been immersed in Southwest Washington for a very long time. And uh, the hundreds of students, the generations of students would attest to that. Um, I think that even though I've only been in the district for the last eight months, um, the fact that I've been awarded for my community work um, is a testament for uh, how I am part of the community. I know that my opponent, uh, Jamie Herrera Butler, has been talking about how um, I am doing this out of political opportunity. But the reality is my family and I have been trying to relocate to Southwest Washington for the last several years. Um, It's hard when you have two two uh, people working, um, two jobs, uh, which is necessary in this economy. Sometimes it's hard for you to be both in the same place. And that's what we've been working on. I was finally able to move myself eight months ago. My family will be be joining me once my husband gets the job transfer. So I think it's being used as an attempt to Take, the, take somebody's eyes off of the fact that our representative has not been effective and that I'm a viable candidate who's able to unseat her. Well, you certainly seem to be uh, the first candidate running to make it onto her radar. So she's talking about you. <laughs> That's um, true. What do you need in terms of support for your campaign? Certainly every campaign needs money, but uh, also volunteers, et cetera. How can people help? I think volunteering is absolutely integral for us winning this race um, because I believe it's going to be won by a ground game. We have 600 volunteers already in the four months we've been in this race. We need to quadruple that. We need those volunteers in every part of the district because it is rather large district. In order to get the message out, we do need people on team long. So that's the best thing that can happen in terms of uh, buttressing up this, this, um, uh, this campaign. 
Okay. And so where can people go to learn more? So my website is electlong.com. Uh, and that is the best place. Uh, and you can reach out to us. We have a volunteer coordinator who will um, uh, get your contact information and we'll get you to working as soon as possible. Well, Carolyn Long, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck. Thanks, Steph, and Have a great day. You too. So last week, a coalition of indivisible groups in the 8th District here in Washington released the results of their voting to endorse a candidate in the congressional race. And it actually is a dual endorsement of Jason Ritterizer and Kim Schreier. Uh, early on in their campaigns, we spoke with both of them here on the show. And so I wanted to bring them both back to uh, to talk about this endorsement, see how the campaign is proceeding, all that good stuff. So we talked first with Jason Ritterizer. Jason, welcome back, man. Stefan, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be uh, back on this great show again and great program. So uh, first, um, you know, congratulations on the endorsement. Hey, we are so excited. Uh, this is this is a big endorsement for us. It's a it's a group of uh, activists who have been participating in this race and who have been engaged from the beginning. Uh, they had a, a, a rigorous endorsement process in which they looked at the candidates. We had candidate forums and interviews. And uh, yes, you did. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you really got put through the ringer. We're really really pleased and, <laughs> and thrilled about the results. You know, and I, I wonder sort of about that process because there were several interviews. Um, I was honored to moderate a couple of events, uh, forums that we did with the candidates there. I, I'm wondering if that did that prove to be instructive for you as a candidate. No question. I mean, anytime we can uh, engage with voters, uh, we can do it in a candidate forum or an interview, talk about the issues, and people get a real good understanding of where we come from, uh, what the candidates' values are, and why we're running for office. I think those are uh, those are critical parts to uh, an endorsement. And so I, I thought the process was fantastic. Uh, I thought the level of engagement was really energizing because ultimately, look, these are the folks who are going to be out on the ground who are going to win this election for us. And so we're excited. You know, you've been out there uh, for months and months and months talking with people, and you have been talking with people outside of activist groups, yeah. and, and you're starting to kind of reach beyond that scope a little bit. And I'm wondering how that process is going for you now. Yeah. You know, right. So we, we launched the campaign back in July, and uh, when we did that, we were pretty intentional in reaching out to voters where they're at. That's why we... Uh, we did our 30 town halls in 30 days, and right. and uh, I've really enjoyed the level of activism, not just from the groups of folks who uh, are rallying around this race early, but from the people who are engaged across the district uh, who didn't used to be engaged in politics. Right. And so now we're seeing an outpouring of support in South King County and East Pierce County and Eastern Washington, uh, and people who are excited about this race. Washington State has, has an opportunity here. Uh, to to change a district and to change the makeup of a Congress. You've also gotten a number of other endorsements as well. We have. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, definitely. We are uh, very excited. Indivisible is our 12th endorsement. No, congrats. Um, Yeah, we've been thrilled to earn labor endorsements and law enforcement endorsements, firefighter endorsements. Uh, We got a a dual endorsement with the Young Democrats uh, of Washington. Now, that's a big deal because one of the things that you've touted about yourself in this campaign is that you are the sole millennial uh, (laughs) running in this uh, in this pack, so. I, that's right. You know, and and I think what we're seeing the young Democrats of Washington had their convention here just a couple of weeks ago, and a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy around the idea that it's time to send the next generation to Congress. Yeah. 
this is the first time that you've run for office. I'm, I'm wondering what the learning curve has been <laughs> like. I mean, what, yeah. have there been surprises along the way? Oh, yeah. There's always surprises in politics. That's the, that's the fun <laughs> of it. Um, no, but look, I, I had uh, a, a great experience back in the 2006 election cycle of working on Congressman Rick Larson's uh, re-election That's campaign. right, yeah, you worked, worked for Rick Larson. Yeah. yeah, so I you know, I went into this sort of eyes wide open. I got to see how a, a really good uh, campaign organization runs. Uh, Rick was obviously very successful in that re-election and has been successful in Congress ever since. And, um, and so I, I knew what to expect going in. But there are always twists and turns. There are always obstacles to overcome. But uh, the good news is we're energized, we're excited, uh, and I think our momentum is building. And that's that's really what you want in politics. Well, we also talked a little bit about how you're uh, keeping your energy up. And uh, you said law school was a uh, pretty good proving ground for that. <laughs> yeah, law school and coffee is helpful. Uh, <laughs> now, it, it, it's, a, it's an experience to get you ready for a sprint. And uh, we're just about 130 days away from an election. So we're ready to kind of turn it on. Here. Yeah, I was going to say, what are we at right now? I think we're about five plus months yeah, that's uh, right. away from the election. So one of the big challenges in, particularly in this stage of the race, is name recognition. Yeah. So what what are the sorts of things that you're doing to kind of? And you talked that you you know you just mentioned you're going out and meeting with a number of community groups and people like that. But what are some of the other things that you're doing to yeah. kind of get your name out there? You know, I am. Uh, the great beneficiary of some public servants in eastern Washington, my parents who worked hard in the community mm. uh, in Ellensburg and eastern Washington, central Washington. Uh, and so uh, it's in part about making sure that people know who I am, uh, that I am the son of Steve and Wendy Ritterizer, who've uh, been dedicated public servants to our community for a long time, and, and also spreading our ne- name recognition throughout the district. Um, you know, working as a criminal prosecutor in South King County is helpful. That helps. Um, but in politics, in part, the name of the game is name ID. Yeah. Uh, and so making sure that we're meeting with constituent groups and uh, different minority groups in the community, all of whom are going to play an integral part in this election, is really, really important. Um, certainly that's part of why uh, the unfortunate reality of campaign fundraising yeah. is what it is. You have to be able to reach out to folks and make sure that they know who you are and what you stand for. You know, as we have progressed along with the many, many, I guess, outrages of the Trump administration, and yeah. you know, we're about a year and a couple of months at this point into his administration, have you heard a shift in tone in terms of what people are telling you um, about their concerns about what's happening sure. in this country? You know, um, yeah, I think everybody was concerned back when we were running around the district in September about the Trump administration. Um, I, I don't think we knew how bad it was going to be. Um, and, and I don't mean to be uh, sort of depressing about it, but the reality is, you know, the Trump administration is eroding our democracy, uh, I think, faster than anybody anticipated. Um, Trump is a threat to our national security. Uh, he's, I think, someone that most people think about every day. Uh, and that's not what you want in a president. You want somebody who is stable, uh, who brings confidence uh, to the highest levels of government, and who represents us well uh, around the world. And unfortunately, we don't have that. And I think... And you're hearing that from people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're hearing that uh, in every corner of the district. You know, I think that um, people uh, back in 2016 were so desperate for a new uh, type of leadership that they were willing to look past all the incredible flaws in Trump's character. That's putting it mildly. Yeah, that's right. No, it is. Um, I mean, without a doubt, he is the worst president in the history of the United States. And um, I do think, though, that 
folks were so desperate to look for different leadership, they were willing to excuse some of that conduct. And I think we're seeing that shift a bit. I think that uh, people who now realize what his administration is capable of and how detrimental it is, uh, we're seeing them come around and look for for folks who are going to stand up and fight for the middle class. You know, I mean, part of Trump's promise was to do that, and and that was just a lie. Yeah. And so we're seeing folks who are interested in in representatives and in candidates who are going to stand up and actually fight for the middle class again. Well, sort of putting a hopeful spin on things. And I think a lot of people are very invested right now in putting the brakes on what's happening. And that will mean flipping one or both chambers of Congress. Um, and I, I want to get your thoughts on Connor Lamb's victory in the special election in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, he erased what was essentially a, a 20 point Trump lead uh, in Washington's eighth. Hillary Clinton actually beat Trump by three points. But the eighth has never sent a, a Democrat to Congress. And Dave Reichert won re-election in 2016 by almost 11 points. So how do you square all this away? Yeah. Well, first, you know, uh, look, I, I've been putting a positive spin on this. You're absolutely right to do that. This, this is uh, the most optimistic time in politics uh, that I've seen in my lifetime. Because what we have seen, and the one benefit of the Trump administration, is that we've seen activism rise up from the bottom. Uh, and people re-engage again uh, with their representatives and with their communities to bring change that they want to see in our country. Uh, and we saw that on Pennsylvania's 18th. Connor is a fantastic guy. Uh, he is he's 33 years old. He's a former prosecutor. Uh, and I think reflected the district in which he was running. And that's what people want. They want a new generation that reflects the district and the values uh, that are important in that district. And they're willing to take a chance on a guy like Connor Lamb. And that's really exciting. Connor and I... Uh, Connor and I are born just a few days apart, and I think uh, share a lot of vision for how this country ought to move forward. So Rick Saccone ran in part on the GOP tax law. This was Connor Lamb's uh, Republican opponent. Didn't work. Um, Dino Rossi, the likely GOP opponent uh, in the 8th, said uh, about the GOP tax law, um, quote, it is an average of $3,357 per family in the 8th Congressional District. I know that some have called it crumbs along with Nancy Pelosi. I don't know how rich these people are, but that's real money to most people. This is something that's likely going to come up again if you face Rossi in the general. How do you respond to that? Well, the number always changes, right? Because out of the Trump administration, it was $4,400. Apparently, my opponent thinks it's $3,300. In reality, it's almost no dollars. Uh, And and by the way, uh, it is not a tax bill. This is a tax scam that shifted wealth in this country to the most wealthy people and corporations in our nation, uh, to the tune of about $1.6, $1.8 trillion. And so uh, I think that our tax system works best when everybody pays their fair share because it is in our public interest to have good roads and good schools and those who have the most wealth ought to pay their fair share, not get this massive transfer of money to them. And so, look, I take real issue uh, with Dino Rossi's perspective that this somehow is good for the middle class. I think that people know it's not. I don't think that's a message that people are going to accept. And at the end of the day, we're going to make sure they understand that when I have the opportunity to go to Congress, we're actually going to fight for the middle class again and rebuild from the middle out. Well, it all sounds great. And Jason Ritterizer, uh, congratulations on the endorsement and uh, best of luck with the campaign, man. Stephen, we're so thrilled. And thank you so much. I look forward to talking soon. And we talk next with Kim Schreier. Kim, welcome back to the show. Oh, hi, Stefan. Thank you so much for having me back on the show. Boy, things have really progressed since I was with you back in 
August or September, huh? Yes, it has been an eventful, what has it been like, seven months or something like that. It seems like years ago because we're living in Trump time now. So anyway, I want to say congratulations on the endorsement. Thank you very much. I'm really honored to have received this endorsement. It, um, it feels really good because, as you know or may, may remember, my start was really with Indivisible, yeah. attending the meetings, protesting in front of Reichert's office. So this feels good. Also, you just surpassed the million-dollar mark in your fundraising as well. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. It takes a lot of work, and I think people get lost sometimes. I know I never really took fundraising seriously before running for office, but, you know, what's behind every dollar raised is a conversation. And these are all thoughtful conversations, answering questions, listening to what's on voters' minds, and getting voters excited enough about this pediatrician running for office that they want to invest. And so it feels really good to hit a million. I mean, on the other hand, I got to get to three million or four million, so mm. I'm still working really hard. But um, yeah, it feels good to have that much support. Well, as we know, there's going to be a lot of money pouring into this race. We recently found out that Paul Ryan has put one of his super PACs here in the eighth district. He's already put one out in the fifth, which means that uh, they are definitely planning on pouring millions of dollars into this campaign. I, I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. It seems like the GOP might be a little scared at this point. Well, I'm going to take that as a big compliment. Here's the thing. They're going to pour in unbelievable amounts of money. But one thing that they're not going to have, they are not going to have the grassroots excitement that we have. They are not going to have the uh, the enthusiasm about voting. I just don't think they're going to have the turnout that we have. And frankly, Rossi's been hiding from voters, just like Reichert wasn't holding town halls. And I think that the Republicans are scared that they're going to lose this seat. Recent polling says it's a toss up. Yeah, well, it's neck and neck right now. So, you know, as I mentioned to Jason, there's always a learning curve when you are a first-time candidate, and I'm sure that this is something that you have discovered. I'm wondering, what are some of the things that have surprised you about running for office, maybe both pleasantly and unpleasantly during this process? Wow. Well, it is a steep learning curve, but I have a lifelong history of learning, so it's really fun to learn a lot of this. I think the biggest surprise is fundraising. Wrapping my head around the fundraising element um, was difficult until somebody pointed out to me that I could be the most brilliant person in the world and have the most thoughtful commentary ever, but if I couldn't let anybody know that via TV, Facebook, or other communications, then nobody was going to care what I had to say. And that is a sad reality of politics right now. So fundraising has been a disappointment um, uh, in terms of just how much money is in our politics. But if I don't, if I don't take on Dino in this way and play the game, you know, by these rules, then I will certainly lose. So that was that was surprise number one. Uh, surprise number two for me was, boy, when I first started, I was petrified about speaking in public. And now I feel pretty good about it. Um, I didn't know if I'd get over that hurdle, but I have. And uh, I don't know. Oh, you know what else is surprising and really exciting? That when I go around this district, people now know who I am. I was in a restaurant in Wenatchee recently, and a woman came up to me and said, wait, are you Dr. Kim Schreier? And I was flabbergasted. Yes. Well, you know, a big part of running for office is name recognition, it's face and name recognition. Yeah. I know. I just had no idea that people really knew, but people are excited about this campaign. I mean, people are paying attention. They're involved in indivisible groups. 
people are energized and we all understand that this presidency is dangerous and chaotic and corrupt and that we need checks and balances. And that's why everybody's excited about voting. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure that you're hearing from the you know voters as you're out there talking that people are becoming far more concerned about an unchecked Donald Trump. Here we are a year and change into this administration and it just gets more frightening all the time. And I know part of the reason that you're running is to be that check. And so I'm as you see these things come up, uh, what are some of the things that are concerning you most right now? And, and what would you do to push back? Well, the first one that comes to mind is DACA. I am just um, incredibly frustrated that the lives of 800,000 young adults and teenagers are in limbo right now because our president wants a wall. It's like a, a tit for tat, and they're holding these kids and young adults hostage um, over budget negotiations and a wall. And I find that deeply disturbing and so un-American. These kids, as I mentioned in my first interview with you, I really, they are no less American than I am. Right. And I believe it is an American value and our responsibility to make sure they have a quick, easy pathway to citizenship. Um, so that would be one. Uh, healthcare, of course, is top of my agenda. And, you know, it that that is why this pediatrician is running to fight for health care, not just for my patients, but for families all over this district, because every one of those 26 million people in the country is just like a patient to me. And every one of those 70,000 people in our district who would lose coverage if Obamacare or the ACA was repealed, those are just like my patients to me. Everybody's got a story. Well, you know, it's interesting to hear you frame it that way, uh, because on your Twitter page, there's a photo of you with three of your young patients. Uh, most people uh, know that you are a pediatrician, and you have taken a leave from your practice, and I imagine that because being a pediatrician is so personal, it's got to be tough to be away. And so hearing you talk about the service and basically expanding your the range of the people that you, I guess, are, are protecting then uh, as a physician is expanding is, is, is a great way to look at it. It is. It's really the only way that makes it okay and palatable to leave a career that I love because I really, and I've said this all along, that I'm really hoping that I can do more good for more children and families all across this district and across this country from Congress than I can in the four walls of my office. And my patients, I, I see them still. I live here, so I see them around town. Mm -hmm. I saw them at the uh, gun safety protest last week or two weeks ago in North Bend. Um, they all say pretty much the same thing. They say, go girl, and we're so proud of you, and we need more people like you in Congress. And they all say, but my kids kind of miss you as being their pediatrician. So, um, you know, it, it is bittersweet. I'm hoping that I will inspire a lot of my patients that when something's wrong in the world, they should stand up and do the right thing. I'm sure that you already are. And honestly, I think we're all sort of looking at ourselves right now. We were talking about this before we begin our, our conversation here, that uh, we all have young people in our lives and we want to be able to say to them in the future, this is what we did during this time when our country really, really needed us. That's right. I do think of this as one of those moments in history. I think back to, um, you know, the questions we ask our own parents. Like I asked my parents, mm -hmm. what were you doing during the civil rights movement? And I imagine things like, what would I have done in World War II? And I would always like to think that I would be on the right side of history and that I would 
be bold enough to stand up and do the right thing and brave enough. And so I know my son, Sam, will ask me one day, hey, mom, what did you do after Trump got elected? And this is my answer to him. Well, I think that's wonderful. And I, again, want to say uh, congratulations on the endorsement and uh, continued best of luck on the campaign, Kim. Thank you very much. I really am excited about working with the community, with Indivisible to flip the seat. This is not a one-person job. This is a whole community that's going to flip the seat together. It takes a village. It does. Thank you, (laughs) Stefan. Thank you, Kim. And that'll do it for this week's show. As always, you can head over to indivisiblepodcast.org for more information about the show. I will mention that the email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Do keep the emails coming, please. And the Twitter handle is indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Carolyn Long, Jason Rudderizer, and Kim Schreier. And as always, my thanks to you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.